0: You got to be persistent and relentless. I don't know that there's anybody in this world that things are just going to be given to you, short of being born a trust fund kid. People aren't going to go out of their way to help you and to make your life easy and what you want it to be.
1: That's Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp.
0: You're going to have to take, you know, the agency over yourself and over your own decisions and say, "I'm going to help make this happen."
1: I'm Jessica Mogul, Head of Coaching Strategy at CRISP, the nation's number one law firm growth company. Alongside Michael Mogul, we've built this business through practice, not theory. CRISP started with just $500 to Michael's name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, we sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Michael Mogul to discuss why quote unquote overnight success stories are a complete misnomer, how the most successful leaders make and stick with their decisions, and why leading with transparency builds a culture of trust.
0: At the end of the day, we can look our girls in the eyes and say like, we are doing this the right way. There's no secrets, there's no catacombs. You can go down <laughs> by the basement of the office and you're like, oh man, they've they wear all these skulls, right? There's none of that. And it's not to say that it, it hasn't been difficult, it hasn't been challenging. And look, I'm not perfect, we're not perfect. We make mistakes all the time. I make mistakes all the time. But the intent is to do it right. So I think that if you're trying to like create something great, then do it in a way where years from now, you built it with such a strong foundation and no one can take that away from you.
1: That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Unless this is the very first episode you've heard of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast, you're probably very familiar with today's guest. Besides hosting this podcast every week, Michael Mogul is known for being the founder and CEO of CRISP, the nation's number one law firm growth company, best selling author of The Game Changing Attorney mastermind behind the largest law firm growth conference on earth, the Game Changer Summit. And yes, he also happens to be my husband. Michael has built a reputation for being an innovative thought leader and a disruptor to the industry. But why is Michael the way that he is?
0: I'll tell you what, I do believe that our experiences as children do help shape us into adults, and then there's also I'm sure there's like the genetic component of it as well. I've always been the type of person that wanted to have a certain level of freedom and control over my own decision making, over my outcomes, over my successes, over my failures. I was more okay with that. Like I'm the type of person where if I'm to fail, if I'm good, everything were to go down to zero, I would much rather have that be because of my decision making and my fault and everything like that than to be as a result of somebody else's decision making. And that's I think it's one of the reasons why you go on start a business because everything is your fault. If your people aren't doing a great job, well, you hired them and you either trained them or didn't train them. If your organization isn't growing, well, who's deciding who to hire and what you do and what your service offering is, all that stuff, it's you. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing every single thing, but as leaders, we're paid for our judgment, not our time. So you had to make certain decisions around who you would bring into your organization, what type of work you would do, where you would do that work and how you would do it.
1: Yeah, Michael, I always say you're the the most unemployable person. You'd be a horrible employee somewhere.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and I probably was just over the years because to me, things wouldn't move at a very fast pace. And in any place that I was, I remember being around really, really, really smart people that were just so content and complacent around just staying exactly where they were. And that seemed miserable to me. Like projects that could get done in a month would span a year. And everybody would always kick the can. And I think it's one, it's probably because at many organizations that the incentive structure isn't right. So it just encourages people just to do nothing. Why would you want to move fast if you're just going to get, you know, as soon as you finish one project, you'll get the next project, right? Also, I think in those types of situations, in general, the structure of an incentive of how an organization functions, especially if when I bootstrap the business, we've never had any investors, no partners, nothing like that. Every single day, money flows out every single day. And I remember even that in 2020, COVID was, was really you know, taking off. I remember even doing the calculation. I was thinking every single day, $30,000 a day would flow out of this organization to support Regardless our team and, and, and in. like infrastructure, marketing, like all that stuff, no matter what. And when you've got a hole in the bottom of the boat, you've got to figure out how to continuously outpace that and to continuously grow. So it creates an innate sense of urgency. And if you don't have you know, an organization where it's like somebody else is footing the bill, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> is there, but when it's your money and when it's constantly flowing out, you're going to develop a great sense of urgency of that, or you'll go out of business.
1: Yeah. And, you know, even on vacation, you were joking, like everything you do is problem solving. If someone says, what do you do? How do you answer this?
0: Professional, professional, elite level problem solver. <laughs> when we first I mean, met,
1: he actually, you said you are a professional janitor and babysitter, but I guess that's evolved now to problem solver. It
0: really is. I, <laughs> in, in a way, I like, I enjoy it to an extent, but- it's problems every day. I mean, even before we it's coming in this morning, three major problems, like constantly every day. And it. I, I had this thought the other day and I don't know if this is something that's going to bring people comfort or even more anxiety. Remember the, like the feeling that you had when you had your worst problem, let's say in the past oh, two God. years. So just remember that feeling that like pit in your stomach and ask yourself, do you really think that that's the last time you felt that or that you've experienced that? Absolutely not. Hell no. So, You will probably experience maybe at least one time, two times, 10 times, maybe a hundred more times. And that's where you just say, okay, well, if that's going to happen, I just accept that, that I'm going to have to like have that feeling. Something will not go my way. It's going to be like huge. It's going to be a major problem and I'm going to have to figure out and solve it. So now I come in and I'm like, I have the expectation of that. And that's helped me.
1: I always go back to even the first Tesla that we gave away and it was like all the logistics, the details, the event that we did at Avo, like all of the things of putting that together and how difficult that was. And now I'm like, I could give away a car in my sleep now.
0: Oh, (laughs) look, at the Tesla dealership, it's become easy. I mean, I don't have like 12 of these now, 12 Teslas or something like that. And every time I come in, they always want to give you the tour of the car and show you how it works and like all this stuff. And I'm like, guys, come on, We, we know. But they get excited to like show me how a Model 3 or a Model S or, you know, whatever it is, works. And I'm like, it's all good in and out. And this could be like a 15 minute process now, which, you know, it's interesting because when people go to pick up a new car, usually that's a really exciting day. And for me, it's become very transactional. It's okay, like we come in, we get this thing. Okay, great. Let's bring it to the office. And then we shoot a video and it sits ready for whoever the winner will be. But it's amazing to highlight your point. The first time, man, I was so nervous on the drive over to the dealership. I was even thinking like, should I even do this? This is crazy. Do I want to clear out my savings? Because that first Tesla, the Model S was, I think was $77,000. And this was terrifying to do. And I remember driving the dealership. I was so nervous and I didn't want to screw anything up. Okay. I remember they were even saying, we're like, oh, we can drive film back. it, we like, can film it. I'm like, I don't want to film it because I'm, <laughs> I'm nervous. And then, and then after that, that's where all the problems started. We're like, okay, well, like, we thought this thing would be a huge hit. And then right out of the gate you know, in the first 30 days, it wasn't. Like, no one even believed that we were actually even doing this. They're like, I remember we'd go to shoots and we work with clients. And they're like, yeah, I saw that. I thought that was a joke. I didn't right. think you guys were actually doing that.
1: And going back to that that feeling, so that pit of, you know, here's a problem, here's another problem, and I think it was at one of the GCS2, and I looked at you and I said, is this fun for you? (laughs) What was your answer?
0: (laughs) Yeah. So at at the summits, at that point, yeah, I I love it. But I will say that I have a, a recurring nightmare, at least every other night, on the way to these conferences for probably like the three, four, five, six months in advance, and it is that no one has showed up. The room is empty. And then when I they tell me, hey, Mike, you got to go on stage. And I forgot to prepare. I'm like, God. what? I'm sure I like,
1: feel nervous with you. saying. Yeah. Uh,
0: so I'm sure some people listening, I've had this nightmare where it's like you're back in school or something yeah. and you forgot that there was a class that you had that you never attended or something. And now it's coming time for like your grades. But I do feel that constantly. And it's, yeah, what is Andy Grove, CEO of Intel? He once said he's got a great book by the title, like Only the Paranoid Survive. I constantly feel that. And people be like, hey, what's wrong? You want, can't you relax and all this stuff? I think if it paralyzes you, if it puts you in a position where you're not able to actually do things, then it's probably not healthy. But if it creates this sense of positive urgency where it creates this dynamic where you want to do a really great job, like when we go into these conferences, I understand that people have expectations. They they want to make sure they get a lot of value from this, everything from the content to their experience. I have a tremendous amount of respect for anybody who gets on an airplane, books a hotel room and decides to spend two days with us in Atlanta. So I want to make sure that that's well worth their time. And as we prepare for these things, all the little details, I really, really, really feel like a sense of responsibility to execute well on that. So- that's where that anxiety for me comes from. And as those expectations continue to grow year over year over year, I think it becomes much more challenging. But at the same time, like we were saying even at this most recent conference this past November, the pressure is a privilege to have this opportunity to create this type of experience, to do the type of work that we do. Yes, it comes with stress and yes, it comes with problem solving, but not everyone gets to experience that and, and be able to like be in a position where you have this platform to be able to help and impact people.
1: And going back to, even having problems and problem solving all the time, how do you make decisions?
0: All right, going inside the sick and twisted mind. (laughs) So I do have a framework around how I make decisions. In our coaching workshops, we work through this tool that kind of does this in depth and in detail. So I start by kind of assessing, do I have enough information? And and to me, that usually means, I usually have about like 70% of the information because sometimes the time that it takes to get the other 20% like that delay that really slows decision making sometimes you lose opportunities that way also it doesn't really give you any more clarity oftentimes so if you can usually get about 70 80 percent of the information you need you need around something you're good I also assess around how am I feeling like if I didn't sleep well the night before like and I've got a big decision to make that can impact a lot of people I will postpone that meeting and say hey let me get a good night's rest and then I can be you know in a better headspace the following day I also consider like the second and third order consequences of a decision it's not just just like, well, let me make this decision. And it's like, yes, no, or whatever it is, green light, red light. I look at it and say, okay, well, what happens after that? Let's expand out that decision. Okay, here are all the people that it impacts. Here's the, kind of the upside of making the right decision. Here's the downside of making the wrong decision. And also in the standpoint of like, after this decision is made, what could be the implications of that, like going forward? And sometimes around the decision, I think, okay, well, if we were to blow that decision up in, from the standpoint of like scaling it, and then I think, okay, well, let's scale that to a thousand clients. Does does it still work? Does it still hold up? Does it still make sense? Does it also make sense based on where we believe things are going in terms of the future and like what the needs are of our clients and where we see the industry going? Will it make sense three years from now? Will it make sense five years from now? And if it's the type of decision that only makes sense right now or only makes sense this year, I'll generally say, no, that doesn't make sense to me. But after doing this, I think all of us and people listening are, you make so many decisions throughout a day. I think, you know, the numbers like then the hundreds, if not in the thousands, but there's very, very few key decisions that you'll make throughout a year that are transformative. What Jeff Bezos calls them like one-way door versus two-way door. Two-way door, you can go back and kind of like change it, but like one-way door, like really give these decisions some thought, but not too much thought because here's the thing, it is important, uh, I'm not wearing it today, but the shirt like indecisiveness is weakness decision making, it's to me, I view it speed is really, really important because it's less about trying to be perfect. I think people who try to be perfect are like the ultimate procrastinators that I think they use this as a shield the saying, Oh, it's not perfect yet. So I'm going to hide right. behind my work. And because it's not ready, it's not ready. I think the exact opposite. If you can make decisions with speed, you can be wrong a lot and then eventually right. I'll give an example of this. We work with firm owners and they say, oh, I need to hire a practice manager, for example. And then they'll think about it. And they're like, Oh, the expense of this person, the..." salary, what am I going to do, where am I going to find this person, I'm going to put this off, and they'll spend a month agonizing about this decision. And then you have other firms that are like, we need to hire a practice manager, three paralegals, two attorneys, and then they'll hire those people. Those people will not work out, they'll hire new ones. Those people will not work out, then they'll hire new ones, and they'll still get there faster than the person yes. agonizing over the decision for a year or six months or whatever. So, and it's the same thing with marketing. You can throw things up and then you can get data back and then you can say, how are we going to iterate? How are we going to adjust? Let's get feedback from people rather than trying to like put the perfect campaign together only to then finally launch it after a year and then it fail. So to me, the speed is is very, very important with decision-making.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then once you get to the actual decision, there's the whole actual let's get shit done and the execution and how do you go about executing? And also you say this constantly, but it's so important about who you surround yourself with. And how do those people play a factor in execution?
0: As you were asking this question, I thought I was gonna go in one direction with this. And then as you finish <laughs> that, I think I'm, I'm deciding to go in a different direction. There are human beings on this earth. They exist in the room and they breathe oxygen.
1: The mouth breathers. They'll,
0: Yeah, they'll, they'll <laughs> eat your food, they'll drink your water, but they don't add any material value. They don't get anything done. They're the ones that have these grandiose ideas that have this ambition or this would be nice or whatever, but they don't actually get things done. And I have found that if you surround yourself with these bullshit artists, you will have a lifetime of frustration because nothing will get off the ground. Alternatively, if you surround yourself with people that like to just get things done, the discussions become, We almost sit down and we're like, yes, we spend some time obviously getting clarity around what we're trying to do, making sure that it all makes sense, and then like who's responsible for what. But it's a lot of conversations around accountability of what is the deadline, who's accountable for it? Do you have the information that you need? Are you clear on what we're trying to do? And those meetings become much more productive. And then we have you know review meetings constantly. We're like, what's the status of this project? You have like the ultimate project management going on with everything it is that you're doing. And if you're the person, which I think a lot of entrepreneurs are, where you're the visionary, you have a lot of ideas, you like the new things. If you don't have the type of people around you that can make those ideas real and actually move them forward and then make sure that they recur, you're just going to be frustrated because you're going to have a hundred open loops, maybe a thousand open loops. And then you're just going to get defeated and say, well, nothing can get done. Nothing gets off the ground. So I've had to realign myself in the sense that I have to be very clear about what it is that I want and what it is that we're trying to do and how we prioritize those things. And then sometimes you can't do it right away. You either don't have the person to be able to like move an idea forward, or sometimes your people at max capacity, you need to expand capacity, you need to hire additional people to be able to launch that next new thing that you have to put something off. Maybe you put it off a quarter, maybe you put it off two quarters. Um, Last year, there was something we really wanted to do that we're not going to be able to do until this year. And that pained me, but building a virtual conference, an in-person conference, 30 plus workshops, hiring 30, 40 people, all that baby. stuff. You know, you know <laughs> A new baby, yeah, oh yeah, that by the way. Now this year, that's something that we'll be able to move forward. But I will say, I think that the execution, it really does start with being clear on what it is that you want. And then of course, surrounding yourself with non-bullshit artists, because there's a lot of people that like to smile and nod and act like they're part of a project, but they don't really add any tangible value whatsoever. And these humans exist, and yet they're allowed they're to everywhere. exist. They'll exist companies worldwide. And the reason why I'm like, I'm getting all passionate about this is just because as a business owner and as a leader, your whole role to an extent is like to be able to like, move resources from a lower level of output to the higher level of output. You're basically saying here, we're going to create something. We're going to build our firm. So that means we're going to need to have people in these different roles. We want to be able to help and support more clients. That means we got to expand our capacity. Okay. How do we make sure we maintain the same standard of service or how do we elevate our customer service? What do our operations look like? What about our tracking, our metrics? You know, how's our marketing, how we get in the phone to ring, all these different things become really like your accountability from the top of being able to find the right players to. be able to bring into your organization, make sure that they're engaged and then make sure that they're committed and ensure that things actually get done. If you want to completely mess your life up and completely destroy your own business, uh, I mean, there's many ways to do this, but one of which is to be an absentee like owner. If you don't want to be there, if you're not passionate about what you're trying to do, how do you expect your people to be? I don't understand that. I don't know that anyone is ever going to be more passionate and more engaged than you are as the leader. And if you don't care, and if you don't want to be there, it's easy to knock these people and say, well, they don't care. Well, start with you. And I've seen some people like, again, I'm not, I'm going to be judgmental. But I see these people that seem like they're on year-long vacations, relaxing, drinking, partying. There's nothing wrong with it to an extent. But then their business is tanking, and their people aren't able to really pay their bills. And it's just a mess. And their clients are you know, frustrated and all these different things. And their house is not in order. So I think that your first responsibility when you create this baby of yours, like your business, your law firm, is to make sure that everyone's taken care of. And then when everyone is taken care of, now you can exhale. Now you can take a breath. But until then, if you're going out and, and like drinking and partying and just going nuts and doing all this other stuff while your people are struggling to pay their bills and your clients are frustrated, like, shame on you. You're in the wrong game.
1: Being a leader, of course, means making sure the people on your team are taken care of. But contrary to popular belief, it doesn't mean doing everything yourself
0: your confidence in your people, in your team is going to help you a lot with that. So I have a lot of confidence in our people, which means that like it, most things can now be delegated and like the business can run without me. Like that I'm extremely excited about. That's always been a dream, but just because it can run without you doesn't mean necessarily that it doesn't need you per se. Right. So what I mean by this is that now, because things can run without you, well, let's, let's figure out how we're gonna move it forward. What are the next five years look like? What are the next 10 years look like? And like, how do we focus on building for the future and not just maintaining in the present. So yes, I mean, it's taken years. And you know, anytime I've shared this on any presentation or any any keynote or anything like that, and I tell the story of our evolution over the years from 2012 and my, my apartment with $500 to my name to today as we've grown a team of almost 100 people and 40 plus million in revenue, all, all this stuff. I think people don't realize that most of what they see really happened in the last three years. Our first conference, when you really think about it, like it happened at the end of 2018, And even then the coaching program, the first workshop started in 2019. Even the first Tesla, we didn't give that one away until 2017. But what about 2012 to 2017? That was the dark ages. Those are the scariest times. We're in seven days a week. There's no vacations. Even like my birthday's on Christmas. I'll be working on Christmas. And people look at that and say, oh man, that sounds horrible. Well, what did you think it took, motherfucker? (laughs) It's like this topic of patience. Yeah. And I remember because we just had our year-end meeting with the team and we were talking about like this one like key word. Someone said patience. And I think patience is important because it does take time. I mean, from 2012 to 2022, that was, you know, 10-year period of just unrelenting commitment, of so many trade-offs, of so much failure, of so much sacrifice. Like just, it was hard. Like really, 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 really hard. Experiences I had that I would not wish upon my worst enemy. That being said, where I was impatient was I didn't want it to take 20 years. People say, oh, it grew so quickly. Yeah, you see it now. But in 2012, no one knew us. 2013, no one knew us. 2014, no one knew us. 2015, 2016, you know what I mean? Like okay. also, oh, how much money was Michael making? 2012, zero. 2013, zero. 2014, zero. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think people see you don't that. don't see behind the scenes. Okay. My favorite restaurant at that time, Taco Bell. Okay. And I would think if I had a really, really great month where like we hired a first employee, if I could just make sure the payroll was hit that Friday night, I would go to Taco Bell. Okay. And I would just be like, man, you earned it. (laughs) And that's, that's why I have such a respect for any business owner, any leader that's kind of been through that journey. That's been in the arena because it really does take a toll on people of just unrelenting pain and challenging problem solving things that you have to overcome from making sure you can get the phone to ring consistently to hiring the right people to then dealing with the people challenges that arise, which I think are always the hardest part of any business to just figuring out how we're going to grow and scale this thing to having to develop new skills and capabilities that you didn't previously, you know, have that you now have to grow and learn. So... From that standpoint, I think patience is important of knowing it's going to take a long time, but I'm committed to doing it the right way and building it the right way of making sure that we vet people appropriately, that we really do our due diligence properly, that we're like really investing in our infrastructure for the long term, okay? That we're not trying to like, there's no get rich quick type stuff. There's no snake oil, there's no holy water, none of this stuff. Let's take the dirt road, let's take the stairs to where we're going, okay? And let's do it that way. But then where I think you should have a lack of patience is over your daily efforts in terms of like maintaining a positive urgency. Cause putting off something a day becomes a week, becomes a month, becomes a year. And then you look back over that year. This, this is something I think I put it out in a vlog. Every year I always reflect and I always look back and say, oh, of all the things that we set out to do this year, like what were the wins? And then I look at and say, well, where are, the, where are the areas for growth? What were the learning lessons? But then, Am I satisfied? Am I like satisfied with the progress that we made? And I talk to a lot of people that are constantly living in regret. They're like, I wish I started earlier. I wish I would've done this earlier. I wish I would've started sooner. I wish I would've made this investment sooner. I wish I would've started building out my team sooner. I wish I would've invested in this technology sooner. Whatever it is, it's never like, I wish I would've put it off.
1: No. And one thing I always harp on with like, everything that we do, I think some people may see it. Okay, you sacrifice this, this, that. Everything was a choice. I don't really view it as a sacrifice. I think I tell people even before we are who we are, we were doing videos for bariatric offices. We were, my favorite one, I tell people, I literally went and filmed at a beef jerky conference. Like that was, those were the, yes, kangaroo jerky, all of this. (laughs) But like you had to take what you could get at that point. And so I really always harp on like, even with people, like we want volunteers, not hostages, but like everything is a choice. And so through this journey, because I have also felt this and dealt with it, I guess, seven years of it, but we've lost a lot of friends along the way. We've lost a lot of people along the way, but it's because we grew. And what are your thoughts on on shedding those things?
0: The way I would look at this is as you grow and as you evolve, Your interests are going to change, your own level of development's going to change, the types of conversations you're going to have, those things are going to change and evolve as well. And this is like hanging out with your old friends from high school, okay, like back in your old hometown. And, And I'm sure some people do that, and I don't know there's necessarily anything wrong with it. But as you learn, as you grow, and as you evolve, you'll find that you have less in common with people who aren't doing those things. And at first, you, you know, feel like this responsibility of saying, well, it's not their fault that they're not committed to their careers or they're not committed to their, their families or whatever it is. They're not bad people. It just means that you may not have as much in common with them. And as a result, I gave that example at the conference. Where I talked about my buddy's wedding back from high school and I went to this wedding without you. I remember you were out of town. They sat me down at this table. I didn't know any of the people at the table. And all these people were doing at the tables complaining. They were complaining about the fact that, oh, I hate my job or I can never travel or I hate my kids or like all these things that it just sounded horrible. It was just never ending complaining. And I must've been there, what, 10 minutes and I just walked up and left. I remember you texted me, I'm done. I was like, I said, what? I I'm done. I, saw, <laughs> I, was, I came for the ceremony. I gave my boy Brandon a fist bump. Congratulations, Brandon, you did it. And then, you know, I was going to be there later for that dinner, but I don't, well, I was gonna sit there and endure that. These people complain and they don't have any free will. That they can't make choices and decisions around how they spend their time and what they want to do. And look, there's going to be someone listening and saying, well, Michael, you don't understand. Not everyone can have a choice because they got to pay the bills. And like, they can't just do whatever the hell they want. I'm like, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that you have decisions and choices of you can decide how you're going to lead your life. Okay, and you can decide what role you're going to play, where you're going to work, where you're going to live, who you're going to marry, whether you have kids or not, whatever it is. like is, you're gonna make all these decisions. And then the situation you find yourself in, if it's not what you want, uh, remember we had that one waiter, this is in Barcelona. Remember oh, we went on that trip? Our the man quote. was a sage, he was a sage. He was wise <laughs> beyond his years. And I, I think we ordered something. I ordered something.
1: something, I didn't like it.
0: Yeah, you didn't like it. And then he comes up, his English wasn't great, but he. I remember he said, if you don't like, change. Yeah. Hello? Okay. So
1: simple. <laughs>
0: okay. Uh, well yeah. said, my man. Yeah. So that's the thing. I mean, what, to sit there and complain? Who's that for? Right. I don't know what the preference is It's Oh, yes, you're right. It's so horrible and miserable for you. Um, yes, your kids, they're terrible. Your job is terrible. Your boss is terrible. Do you feel better now? Yeah. Yeah, I feel better. Okay. But then when you're driving home from that wedding, your life's still what it is. You know, nothing changed. You maybe had a moment of just feeling better because somebody empathized with you, or sympathized rather, but nothing changed. So you're gonna wake up the next day and you're gonna be still stuck in that unless you do something about it, unless you actually make a different decision, unless you start saying, hey, I'm gonna be accountable for all aspects of my life. If I don't yeah. like this situation, well, whose fault is it? It's mine. Okay, yeah. well, here's the good news. because it's your fault and it's because of your decision-making, you can make different decisions.
1: Yeah, and that actually makes me think about being committed and going all in. So we'll not name this person, but I remember someone many years ago wanted you to be their mentor because they Mm -hmm. were thinking about starting a business and (laughs) you already know where this is going Uh (laughs) and you were like, all right, one breakfast, we'll do this. And he wanted to continue to meet and he had the cush job. He had the company car, he had all this and he's like, I want to do my own thing. And what did you tell him?
0: I think that's great, man. I think that sounds amazing. When you decide to go all in on that and you quit your job and start your business all the way, no problem, man, I'll continue to meet with you. I'm always happy to help you and support you. Just let me know when that happens. And how many years have passed by? Five, six years? At least. It does take a lot to take that leap. And you could apply this to anything. Yeah. When we talk about this, this level of commitment, I think it's this implication of not dipping your toe in the water or not trying to like straddle. What's the example? It's like straddling two toilet seats, like pick one and shit just go. Like, instead of like, (laughs) this is going to be a crazy podcast. They're going to have to edit all this stuff out. But it's just like, you got to make a choice at some point, you know? So make a decision. And decisiveness is weakness. And when you, so here's the thing, not making a decision is also making a decision. When you're straddling, you're just prolonging things. That is a decision that I think breeds a lifetime of regret. And by the way, I was not always this way. I was, I believe molded through like extreme levels of like, Pain and suffering and Adversity. struggle of learning these lessons the hard way everything that we're talking about I did wrong my regret is I didn't have a mentor sooner I thought I knew it all I thought I didn't need help and I just had failure after failure after failure after failure. The more that I thought I knew, then the less, in fact, that I actually knew and understood. And it created this level of like false confidence where it created a very painful life for me because things would not go my way. I wouldn't have money. I wouldn't have good relationships. I wouldn't have any consistency or predictability. I would just have bad things happen to me. If you ever meet those people where it seems like they're just the most unlucky people ever, they get through bad bouts of like bad situations in their life and you think, wow, this person's so unlucky. That was me a point. And it was me because I made the bad decisions. I made the wrong decision every single time. And I had to learn the hard way. And it's almost like me trying to bang my head against the wall thinking that this is the way through instead of like opening a door right next to me and just walking through. (laughs) So I say this all with extreme amounts of humility that I'd not wish any of this upon anybody. And I think that's one of the reasons why we do the work that we do. Even the coaching is like, let me share with you all these cautionary tales of all these failures and all these things that we've learned. So you don't have to go down that path.
1: Yeah. And I think one part that that hits both of us very hard, because we have gone through a lot of pain, we've gone through a lot of adversity in this. I mean, even from the time we were so young and like, we both have immigrant parents, like I'm an Asian in Alabama. That's not really a common thing. And I think one of our biggest fears for both of us is now we've got these two girls and we don't want them to experience what we've experienced, but we also need them to have that humility. So how are we going to put that in place with them? When we think about the gratitude that they need to have and like the, the adversity is what's made us strong. It's adversity is what's made us who we are, but we have to also instill that in them.
0: So this one chills me to my bones because at, at the core of it, I do not know. I have asked people that I think have, have raised like amazing kids that are grateful and that have just an amazing mindset. And I've asked them, well, how did you do it? How did you raise these incredible children? Because I look at it and the responsibility of a parent is to set up your child to be able to succeed and stand on their own in the world, right? It's like either you raise your kids or the world will. So I look at that and I think, well, how do we do that with our girls? for me, at least it starts with being present, for sure, 1000%. And then also in terms of, how do we conduct ourselves around them? Because I think children kind of, they look up to adults and they're gonna see how we lead ourselves and how we behave. And then also a lot of it is around like, just as with team members, what kind of standard are you going to set? What kind of standard will you set in the household? What is okay and what is not okay? I mean, I'm telling you this, I'm not interested in being the friend of Mila or Misha. It pains me, <laughs> like it really does. Like I wanna be liked. Like I want this child to really love me and like me, but I feel a greater sense of responsibility of being their parent and being their coach to set them up so that one day, like when, when we're gone when, that they can be people of value, that they have confidence, that they have just self-esteem, that they have like capabilities and skills and whatever dec- you know they decide to pursue, that they don't need us. And then that, that pains me to say, because I'm like, I hope this girl always needs us. But <laughs> that being said, I think, that would be a success.
1: So, Mila's latest thing, three. I'm like, Mila, can you go do this? Can you do that? I can't. It's not because she really thinks that she can't. It's like her cute way of saying no, but your response to her saying, I can't.
0: So that is not in the vocabulary of our household, this word, and she's like, (laughs) I can't. (laughs) And and like you have a conversation with a three-year-old. So, but I stopped everything I was doing. I was like, wait a second, (laughs) hold up. Because I think that this kind of self-talk that we have as adults, a lot of it is developed and fostered when we're children. So it's this whole idea, you know, Carol Dweck, growth mindset and your ability to be able to like grow your skills and grow your capabilities versus, you know, thinking, I'm just stuck with the way that I was born and the way that I am, right? I'm smart or I'm not smart or whatever it is. Versus growth mindset being that the mind is malleable, that I can't yet. Okay, add a yet to the end of that. And I think we can solve a lot of things. We can get you there. We can like work through it. You can figure it out. You're capable, you're strong, like all these different things without a doubt. And it's true. This stuff is true. I remember I said this at the year-end meeting. I was like, we had Hal Elrod come and speak, and he talked about just setting up yourself for success to have your best year yet you know, in 2022 and beyond. And I remember I came up after Hal spoke, and I was like, I used to hear stuff like what Hal was saying, everything from like mindset to affirmations to all these different habits and routines. And I used to think that's cute. Okay, that's the kind of thing that like people who've already figured it out and then the rich people, that that's what they say, right? But this sounds very cliche to me. And- when I was saying those things, like at the time where I thought all that, I was broke, I didn't have any like good relationships, my life was a mess. It was just not very enviable. And as I started becoming more open-minded to a different way of thinking and a different way of doing things and in a different way of just approaching situations and even just making decisions, I started to see that oh, all this stuff they talk about, everything from like meditation to growth mindset to like journaling, all this stuff to gratitude, maybe there's something here. And I started adopting it. And then my life changed. I think the reason why it changes is not because it's a mystical, magical, the secret type thing. I think it changes because it influences how you think. And if it influences how you think, it influences how you take action and make decisions. And those decisions will dictate your life.
1: And I think all that starts, obviously, at a really young age. I mean, I was reading recently um, What Happened to You, and it's Oprah, and I forgot the doctor's name, but it's all talking about from childhood and how people are molded. I mean, like, their first two years are actually way more impressionable than anything else. And so even challenging how we, you know, we push each other, but I remember the other day, Mila, even, she was like, I want to watch this. And I said, okay, go ask your dad. And she asked you, and you put in on something else. You didn't say no. She came to me and she said, Daddy said, I can't. I said, what did he say exactly? And she said, well, he put it on this. And I said, that's not a no. You get back over there until you get a no. (laughs) So we're trying to put that in them from a very young age. I mean, that's been your mindset. Go for no. A no is better than an open loop.
0: (laughs) Hey, no doesn't mean no. No. I don't want someone to like rake me over the coals later for like this. Don't take this out of context. Okay, relax. (laughs) But throughout my life and as as we were building the business and everything like that, no was the most common thing that I heard from everybody. The amount of phones, you know, that hung up on me. Like the people that told me to F off. that said this would never happen. There was no future. Like the people that never believed business was literally founded on 21 consecutive no's. That being said, maybe no doesn't mean no. Maybe no means not right now, or maybe no means I don't see the value, or I need more information, or you haven't approached it in a way that I can understand it, or, or whatever it is. Really understand, because then no becomes maybe, and maybe becomes yes. You got to be persistent and relentless. I don't know that there's anybody in this world that things are just going to be given to you, short of being born in a trust fund kid. People aren't going to go out of their way to help you and to make your life easy and what you want it to be. You're going to have to take you know the agency over yourself and over your own decisions and say, I. I'm going to help make this happen and I'm going to persist. I remember it was a time I was trying to get a job as a waiter. I, mean, I mm-hmm. grew up waiting tables and I remember I drove around in like 10, 12 different restaurants and they're like, nope, nope, nope. I couldn't mm-hmm. get a job. Geek squad. It wouldn't hire me. Mm-hmm. didn't get a job anywhere and then I finally got this job at this Mexican restaurant like washing dishes okay and then if I'm you know washing the dishes i started to move the weight tables maybe this is where my competition started then there was a contest there was like this tequila drink and they're like whoever can sell the most of these in a month you're gonna get like a hundred dollars gift card to the restaurant that I worked <laughs> at okay um I was committed i to i win. crushed this and then there was somebody who worked there he was like a career waiter right he'd worked there for like 10 years or whatever, he did not like me very much. But every time to a table, I like talk about this drink and I couldn't even drink. I was like 16, 17 years old. So I was telling him, oh, you got to try this drink. You could pour in the shots. Like it, what an incredible experience this was. And I did it. First month that contest happened, boom, I won that thing. I got a $100 gift card to the restaurant, which I gave to my parents. So they were able to go to the restaurant, and eat for free. The second month I won it again, third month I won it again. So maybe that's what it is. <laughs>
1: Michael's unique approach to sales and marketing is what built the strong foundation of Crisp in the early days. But the true differentiator in his strategy is that there's no bullshit. I asked Michael, why does he feel the need to be so
0: honest? Oh man, you opened up a can of worms. So I'm honest because I used to not be. And what I found was that I used to think that I had to game my way to success, meaning that I'd have to do all sorts of like tricks and like duct taped kind of like half-assed stuff to succeed and win. And as I did that, I saw some success and I constantly felt fraudulent, meaning that everything that I had built had been built on a house of cards. It was just like, there was no solid foundation here because everything that I was doing was like, it was a hustle. And I didn't have any confidence, didn't have any self esteem. Like, I would always question myself, but not in a way of like questioning my judgment. It was just more so what am I really building here? Is what I'm doing actually helping somebody? Am I providing value into this world or am I just taking? Okay. And when things started to really grow and improve for me, because I went through this whole experience of like transformation and just basically, all right, it's time to do things differently. I actually found that it's incredibly empowering. Like if you shed yourself of all of your secrets of anything that you're keeping from anybody, if it just, you just do it right. Now you got nothing to hide. It's amazing. And that took some time, no doubt. But when we were building CRISP, I was like, look, let's do it right. Every decision was like, let's do this the right way. And then also your reputation is gonna be everything. So you use somebody the wrong way. Like you create a bad experience. That's gonna spread to a hundred people, maybe a thousand people. And look, I don't mind the reputation as being like, oh, I don't like Michael because he's like innovative and he's doing all this stuff and he's not a <laughs> lawyer and he's working on all these, whatever. I don't mind that because it's not coming from our clients. It's coming from the people that sit in our events that are trying to like create similar offerings to us, right? They come to our events and then they say how much they hate us, Well, amazing, right? right. And I welcome them, I, I don't even think that they're bad people, I think they're good people. There's people just trying to do what they can and trying to grow the same way I was trying to build our company. That being said, I find that if you don't have some sort of ulterior motive, or if you can be honest and maybe very transparent and upfront, that's where the integrity comes from. So I can go to bed at night and I can close my eyes at night and know, that what we've built is real and then also that I am I'm doing this the right way I can do it knowing that it's not you know I'm not some fraud I'm not some whatever this kind of person that everything is built with a solid foundation that we have good people we deeply care about our clients that we care about the work that we're doing we want to help people we want to support people all this stuff and man you start sleeping better that way you start sleeping peacefully because you did it the right way you did it in a way where there's a value exchange where somebody else gains we succeed because we help others succeed like we don't don't succeed until they win. The same way, like if you don't provide great service and great customer service, for example, like that's where it's going to spread, right? People have a lot of options. They can work with a lot of different organizations in business. They can work with a lot of different law firms. I mean, especially if you're a contingency-based firm, like people work with anybody. Why would they work with you? So- first and foremost, you have to have this utmost respect and level of gratitude for the clients who help you keep the lights on and allow you to live the life that you live and allow you to be able to do the things that you do and create value in this world because without them, you don't have anything. So when you say, well, why are you so honest, or whatever it is, I'd rather be honest and upfront and transparent and just do it that way and know that at the end of the day, we can look our girls in the eyes and say like, we are doing this the right way. There's no secrets. There's no catacombs. You can go down <laughs> by the basement of the office and you're like, oh man, they, they wear all these skulls, right? There's none of that. And it's not to say that it, it hasn't been difficult. It hasn't been challenging. And look, I'm not perfect. We're not perfect. No. We make mistakes all the time. I make mistakes all the time. But the intent is to do it right. So I think that if you're trying to create something great, then do it in a way where years from now, you built it with such a strong foundation and no one can take that away from you.
1: It's so true. And that's something that I've actually always admired is, is your level of honesty with that. And so when we go back to kind of the climb and where we were, came from to where we are and how we continue to grow, who do you look up to?
0: Okay. Uh, <laughs> Everyone's listening or roll their eyes because I would say, look, one person immediately comes to mind is you. Without a doubt, if you take you, Jessica, out of this crisp equation... Go back to Michael, you know, 2012, 2013, 2014. We are not a quarter of the organization that we are today. No question, without a doubt, because I did not have the operational know how. I did not know what you knew. I did not have the skill set and capabilities that you have. I was good at, you know, certain things, let's say sales, marketing, the visionary stuff, but. I wouldn't be able to ever scale it, which I think is the real magic of it all. It's not like the great ideas, the the so-called, in quotes, like viral campaigns. All that stuff is cute. Tell everyone but,
1: the biggest thing that you could do to torture anyone is to, you know, triple your business in two days. Yeah. It is the most painful operational thing.
0: The magic <laughs> is the ability to scale. It is the ability to be able to logistically scale of making sure that you can go from supporting one person to supporting thousands of people and to be able to do it every single day in markets all across the US and to be able to deliver a high standard of consistent service every single time. It's easy to do something once or maybe twice, but do it a thousand times a month, every month. And that I think is the magic that you brought. So I look up to you because you've helped have me. served. <laughs> and then also at the same time, it's like you're doing double duty in the sense that like your mom at home and you do way more than me, right? I, I'll say, okay, I'm gonna be present or whatever it is, but like you are doing 10 times more than me at home as well. And I'm trying to be useful. I'm like, how can I help? What can I do? <laughs> okay, I'm doing the bath time. I'm reading or whatever it is. But like you still do 10 times more than me. Even the things you have to think about, like, okay, what kind of preschool are we gonna enroll me. Uh, meal into, we've got to clean these bottles, we've got to sanitize these things, like all these things that I don't even think about. So I look up to you to be able to do that and be in the business working the way you do and operating at the standard that you do. And then the other people I look up to, I mean, this might sound trite, but it's just, I look up to so many of our clients who I've made this commitment over so many years of like what they're going to do in their market and how the the people they're going to serve and their team members they're going to support and to be able to do that and to still be coming in day after day after day after day because they're so passionate about the people that they help and the work that they do and they want to be able to make a greater impact. And then on top of that, to be able to continue to take risks that they do 10 years, 15, 20 years later to be able to continue to double down and say, we're gonna continue to push the chips in because we wanna help more people. We wanna grow, we wanna make a greater impact in our communities. We're going to humble ourselves. We're going to learn. There's a lot of things that we don't know. They're constantly adapting to changes and trends. And I really respect that. And that's why, like, I mean, it's like, to me, it's humbling. And I feel like this responsibility constantly to not let those people down because they're making a lot of trade-offs and choices. And I, I said it earlier, it's like the Teddy Roosevelt, the whole thing around like man in the arena. They're there day after day, year after year, trying to figure things out, trying to make things better, trying to improve, and they've dedicated their lives to it in a way that I, I know that most people will never be grateful to them for that. Like right. there, m- many people oh, yeah. will never say thank you. Many people will never understand the sacrifice they had to make, that their appreciation may never come. And yet they do it anyway, and the amount of good that they do as a result.
1: Yeah, I think leadership, entrepreneurship, either one, most selfless thing you could do.
0: If you do it the right way, yes, yeah, 100%. And that was another evolution that I went through. You know, when I started, broken, poor, selfish, worried about myself, worried about making sure that like I got mine or whatever that meant. Okay, And that way of thinking didn't take me very far. It wasn't until I started to think about the fact that when you hire people, you're not like this person works for me. Like this person's got to do X, Y, and Z, like you're some boss or something, right? You know what I mean? It's like, you're no one. If anything, you can't do what you're trying to do without these people. Correct. So how about like a level of like, just respect and understanding. And that's where I, I look at, okay, anybody that you bring onto your organization, could you do it without people in those roles? You can't accomplish anything, of, I think of a magnitude or greatness if you can't align great people around you that buy into what you're doing, and in order for them to buy into what you're doing, how's it going to benefit them? How's it going to help them achieve their goals? How's it going to help them grow personally, grow professionally, achieve their financial goals, all those different things? Because they're not just here altruistically on their own. What's that value exchange between the organization and the person? They're bringing this value into the organization. Like, how are you supporting them? And how are you serving them? And for me, it's important and it's constantly evolving because there's so many areas that I look at, how can I improve? But I want to make sure that it's always worth it. I wanna make sure it's always, always worth it because I know that we cannot get to where we're going without a great team and great people. I said this earlier, it's like, how do you make sure that your team is supported because they're gonna be supporting your clients? And how do you make sure your clients, that you're being able to serve them in a way that helps them achieve the things that they're trying to achieve in their goals. And then when everybody's taken care of, when everyone's paid up, and this is even true this past year, I come in on Christmas Eve, I'm closing everything out, we're going through all the financials, but after everything is closed out, after everyone's taken care of, after everyone's been paid, only then do we hop on that plane and go to Mexico. Yes. (laughs)
1: Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. It's always after every last box is died. Everyone's like, what are you doing on Christmas Eve? All the things that require the business to keep going are the things we're doing on Christmas Eve.
0: So. Yeah, it's like what? Like, <laughs> leaders eating last? Yes. 100% yes. truth. 100% truth. And they'll know it too. Your, your team members will know it. I remember this years ago, pulling up to this law firm's office, and I could see that like there was like this Lamborghini. In the parking lot, and there was like every other car was like a Honda or Toyota. Nothing against Honda, Toyotas, whatever it is. And I walk into the office, and there's like stains on the floor, and all sorts of old equipment and old computers. Files everywhere. And I walk in to meet with the lawyer, and his office is like brand new furniture, everything like state of the art, like everything. And And I'm um, like, we never ended up working together because I was like, there's something wrong here, okay? You're living the high life over here and your people can't even pay their bills and like, what's going on? They got all busted equipment and all this other shit and like the chairs are falling apart and like, your office is a mess. It's like, you did it backwards, so, And I'm not saying everyone's got to be you know driving around a Bentley in your office, but I am saying that like make sure that people can support themselves and their families and make sure that they're good before you, you buy some cool car or something like that. Or better yet, wait on the cool car and invest it back into your business and like set up something for the long term. If you've done all that and you've taken care of everybody and you've been doing this for years and you've impacted a lot of people, you can go to the Ferrari dealership and get yourself a Ferrari. There's nothing wrong with that. You've worked really, really hard. I support that. I'm not going to demonize you. Are you kidding me? Do whatever you want, it's your business. All I'm saying is that it works better for the long term if you do all those things once everyone else is taken care of first.
1: Michael's talked a lot about the sacrifices he's had to make, relationships, holidays, luxuries, all to build something that benefits not just him, but everyone it touches. So looking back at all he's had to miss out on, I had to know, is he proud of himself?
0: Today I am, and as I reflect back over the years, I am, but for the reasons that, you know, we've been talking about in the sense that I'm proud of myself from going from an immigrant whose family came here, started from nothing, to be able to, like, create a great organization with a hundred people and be able to impact thousands of, of, of our clients. I think that's one part. But the part that I'm more proud of is that look at how we've been able to really help and impact people. The amount of people in our organization that bought homes last year, that paid off loans, clients that were able to like support their team at a higher level, that were able to finally take vacations, that were able to have their best years yet. To me, I'm more proud of that than I am about anything that I've personally achieved in my own life. And when I look at it from the standpoint of, wow, okay, you go from like broke kid in his apartment in 2012 to have like you in my life and have this great team in our lives and this organization and a, our girls and to be spending time with our family, all these things. I'm like, yeah, I'm proud of it. You know, I, I, I'm kind of glazing through this stuff because I don't want to get all choked up about it, but it wasn't supposed to go this way for me. If I did not course correct a lot of different things, This would not have happened. And I know so many people that also have the immigrant story, people that like my parents knew growing up and their children and so on, they didn't have these outcomes. And they also had loving parents and they also had an incredible amount of opportunity, but they didn't make those sacrifices. They didn't make those choices because they didn't think for the long-term. And I would get it from the standpoint that I'm nothing special. If anything, I'm lucky. Like I'm actually very, very lucky that I had certain people come into my life at certain times, and I'm also lucky that I finally decided to like humble myself and take advice and feedback from other people and learn to do better and improve and not believe that I had all the answers. Because if I continue to have that mindset of just you know digging my my heels in the sand of saying that I know best or whatever it is, I'd be broke as hell and I'd be back in that apartment with nobody in my life and all I'd be complaining about all the people who did me dirty and all the opportunity. You know what I mean? Like it'd be every Everybody else's fault yeah. then.
1: Yeah. So, because this is all about, you know, a constant work in progress, and I think we are continually evolving and evolving, what's next for Michael?
0: I wonder about that sometimes, a like calmer Michael. I don't know. I look at it from the standpoint of I have this responsibility to constantly grow. Because it's always about what's next, where are things going, and how can we make sure that the people that we support are like set up for that. So like the future is happening regardless. That's happening. Whether you like it, don't like it. But will you continue to lead in a way that sets up your organization for success and then making sure that our clients are also set up for success? There's a lot of changes happening in the legal industry. There's a lot of things I believe the next three to five years are going to be absolutely transformational, and to many firms will be the most difficult times they will ever have experienced yet in their career. But at the same time, for many other firms who approach this in the right way and capitalize on this opportunity, this is going to be transformation in a good way for them, in a positive way. It's going to be able to help them grow their organizations if they adjust properly. But one thing's for certain is you can't ignore it. So I'm spending a lot of time really educating myself on this stuff, making sure that what we're talking about, the things that we're teaching at our workshops, the things we're working with our clients is setting them up for the future because it's setting up that firm for the future is what also makes sure that their team is taken care of, the team members' families, their families, their clients, and so on, and everyone in their community. I mean, there's, there's a lot that's involved there. And I'm, look, I'm not the only one. There's a lot of people in our organizations, a lot of people at other organizations that think about this stuff. But, and you look at like, what's next for Michael and how does Michael evolve? I am a constant work in progress. There was Michael without kids and there was single Michael. Then there was Michael married. And then you have Michael with two girls, which is like the most recent- stopping there
1: though. There's no more kids. That's that's right, that's where he ends. There's not a Michael with three girls. (laughs) And
0: what does that look like? And to me, it's just, it's constantly learning and growing. I said this at our year-end meeting that I look at this as really day one. And I remember Jeff Bezos, he had like a shareholder letter he put out years and years ago where he, he told the team at Amazon internally, and he was like telling them all, this is day one for the internet, and this is day one for Amazon and everything that we've built up until this point, this platform, it's like, what are we going to do with it? Right. Cause at the time they were just selling books and it's the same thing that I share with the team. It's like, this has taken us 10 years nearly to build this platform that we've now created of everything from the book to the podcast, to the conferences. And now what do you do with this platform? Like, how do you like leverage it for good? How do you move it forward? Because I find that a lot of people, they, they hit certain milestones they hit certain points in their organizations and they start to get comfortable. And they started to think, oh, this is gonna be this way forever. I don't think so. There was other organizations that may have felt that that was gonna be that way forever while we were building. Now things are starting to evolve and change. And I also have the humility to believe that we're not the only ones who ever in the history of the the universe were to ever do that in an industry. So I would get from the standpoint of like, how do we always keep it moving forward? How do we remain humble? How do we make sure that there's not these blind spots? How do we continue to move everything in the organization forward? And to me, that always starts with, how do we support our clients at a higher level? And I'm excited about that because it creates many more interesting problems to solve. Challenges that if you solve them, man, it's gonna help a lot of people. When we look at this, it's like, what does the future look like? And I'm very, very excited because I look at this and I say, all right, everything that came before that was experience that was building this platform now you got this platform okay now now we're going to do some you know do some damage in a good way right now we're going to make some lawyers really really dangerous in their markets now they're going to be like this people are going to like look at them like oh my gosh oh brother i got to contend with who yeah. If you work with Crisp, you will be like the most competitive firm in your market, and you're going to make the greatest impact in your community, and we'll even make sure of it. And I'll tell you what, that is going to be terrifying, absolutely terrifying to any competitor.
1: Love that. All right. I think people are probably sick of us by now.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> so <laughs> I will ask you, Michael Mogul, what does being a game changer mean to you?
0: Wow. I've asked this question many times. <laughs> I've never been asked this question. Okay. What's interesting is I haven't even thought about the answer. So to me, a game changer is someone who is true to their values and operates in a manner of integrity and is just so committed to what it is that they're doing that they don't let anything stand in their way.
1: I want to give a huge thank you to Michael Mogul for taking the time to speak with us today. You don't get to see the man behind the curtain very often, so getting Michael on the other side of the table for this episode has been a treat for me and hopefully a treat for all of you, too. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney podcast with me, Jessica Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you can share it with at least one ambitious law firm owner you think could benefit and leave a five-star review. For more information on our interview with Michael Mogul, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit gamechangingattorney.com. And join us next time when Michael will be sitting down with attorney, recovery advocate, and best-selling author, Brian Cuban.
0: I have done cocaine in the state courthouse bathroom, the federal courthouse bathroom. I've done cocaine everywhere without regard to the consequences. And that is the definition of addiction. Did I know it was wrong? Of course I knew it was wrong. Did I know doing cocaine in the federal courthouse bathroom is risky? Of course I knew it was risky. But what is the definition of addiction? Obsessive-compulsive drug use and drug-seeking behavior without regard to known consequences. That's why lawyers get to spar,
1: right? That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast.